You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. I was reminded of a time, uh, this was when Samuel, our oldest, who was in high school, probably his junior year, would be my guess. And so he was in the room that had the computer. This is back in the day we saw a dial-up, you know, so it was, you know, it was an interesting setup. But he was working on a paper doing research for one of his school projects. Betsy walks through the room where he's at and notices that in addition to what's on the computer screen, he's got music blasting. And remember, back in the day, there was instant messaging that you had on your computer. It wasn't, you know, we didn't have smartphones and stuff. They hadn't arrived yet. And so she noticed that he's got two instant messenger conversations going on, music blasting while he says he's working on a paper. <laughs> and uh, so Betsy, you know, being the due diligent mom, said, all right, shut it all down, turn off the music, get out of those conversations and focus on your paperwork. Samuel, to his credit, I have to give him a lot of credit, he just calmly kind of pushed back from his chair and goes, Mom, I get all A's in my classes. I'm in the National Honor Society. What's the problem? (laughs) Betsy, to her credit, reassessed the situation and said, I guess there's not. And she walked away and (laughs) continued on. But for me, it was a reminder that sometimes it's very hard to trust someone when their way of doing something is very different than your way of doing it. Betsy was looking at that situation and saying, I could never focus in this situation. So obviously you can't as well. It was kind of how she was proceeding. And when she took a step back, realized oh, it is different and I don't necessarily like it, but he makes it work. And so this, you know, ultimately she had to say, is this a hill I want to die on? And decided not to. <laughs> So the challenge, though, is even greater for us when, you know, we're trying to understand, you know, so it's one thing when we've got, you know, a a child or a spouse or some other family member or friend who's doing things very different. It's a whole other thing altogether when we're trying to understand the ways of God, the one who created heaven and earth. And it is like, what in the world? How is this? And trying to make sense of that. And that is very often, most often, is just very difficult to do. So while we believe God is working as part of his plan and his redemptive story, and he's working for us, and it's often behind the scenes. It's hidden. We don't always see what he's doing. He doesn't always tell us what's happening next. And though God may at times seem distant, we need to remember that even though he might be invisible, that he is always present. And he's always invincible. Invisible, but not invincible. This, uh, today we're starting a four-week series on the book of Esther. Uh, so we'll be looking at it. It's a fascinating story. And um, a little background context from that story. Remember the Israelites, you know, they were constantly, you know, they would follow God and then they would turn their backs on God and do other things and adopt other religions. And it was always this cycle of returning to God and falling away from God. Finally, it got really bad and they just, I mean, successive kings and just, they were not returning to God. And God then allowed the Persian Empire, we can actually go back in history and see this happen. So history outside of the Bible will verify what happened here. King Cyrus of Persia came in and overthrew and conquered Israel. And back in the day, it was customary that when you conquered a people group, you literally would take their cream of the crop back with you 
to your home country. So uh, many Israelites were the, the, some of the other leaders and some of the, you know, the smart people, the educated people were carried back and put to work in the government within the conquering army. And that's what happened with Israel. We see the same thing. So we see this happening in Esther. We see the same thing happening in the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel and the good story of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I just love to say that name. Um, <laughs> you saw the same thing happening where they were taken away and basically were brought up in a foreign country. So within Persian history, it's interesting. You follow the history and you can see certain things. So we have Cyrus who did the initial conquering and taking away. Then later on, we see Cyrus the Great. It's actually a different Cyrus. Um, And we see him referred to in the book of Ezra. So we see that sequence. And then a couple, um, I think one or, I think they're skipped a a ruler of one of the kings of, of Persia. And we see King Darius, who we see in the book of Daniel. And then we skip down a little further and we see King Xerxes, who we see here in the book of Esther. And then actually a couple more later on. Actually, after Xerxes was Artaxerxes, his son, um, and where, who was in power when we see the book of Nehemiah. So we see the historical progression running parallel to the biblical progression. It's just, for me, I like history, so I just think this is uh, an interesting parallel. Esther is a very odd book for people who study the Bible. Um, so although it reflects a specific time in history and we can verify this time by outside sources, it's not clear when it was written. They don't know if it was written shortly after this time period or if it was centuries later because it really doesn't give a sense. Like in other books, we can kind of tell by the way it's written. So there's a lot of questions as to when it was written. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't reference God. God's name is never mentioned in the entire book. Um, and that's why for, um, for many Christian circles, Esther was accepted as a true part of the Bible until the 4th century. So 400 years after the time of Christ, when we finally resolved that, uh, that this would actually be part of the, the biblical canon. It's also the only book in the Old Testament that gives attention to Jewish people outside of Israel. So even though Daniel, the book of Daniel is outside of Israel, his focus and attention was back on Israel, the country of Israel, the people of Israel, the Jewish people there. Esther is the only book that the focus and attention is solely on the, 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 the exiles, people in exile, people living outside of Israel. <clears throat> so centuries have passed um, it has since Cyrus originally came in and conquered the country. And um, many Jews never returned. You know, so we know from Nehemiah and Ezra that many Jews over time would return back to the country. But we know here from Esther that many did not. And now because we're talking about successive generations, we have a whole generation of Jewish people who are not Israelis. You know what I mean? So they have the religious identity, but not the national one. And so you've got that whole dynamic playing out here. So the writer of the book of Esther, um, because he's writing about the, the book, uh, writing about the life in exile, he goes to some effort to describe what life was like within that particular kingdom. And so we actually begin chapter one, verse one of Esther with a description of King Xerxes. And we're told that Xerxes ruled 120 provinces that went from Egypt all the way to India. 
So Persia in this day is present-day Iran. So that's literally where he was, that's where their capital was in Susa. Um, and so, but his territory went all the way from, from to the Egypt in the west and all the way to India on the east. Expansive um, um, realm that he had. And then we're told in the third year of his reign, he throws this party. A party for all of his nobles and officials. This party lasted 180 days. Six months. Six-month party. Um, and then after that was over, literally the next verses, and when that was over, he threw another party that lasted a week. But this one, they made special notice of the fact that all the pageantry and all the stuff and all, it was just a, a huge description of, of just the... Uh, I don't know. It was just the opulence of what the, the thing. But there's also special notice there that everyone had as much alcohol as they wanted. It was the open bar to succeed all open bars. It beat every, you know, any, any ceremony any, you would have went to. So basically it was just a drunk fest. And that's, that was the point of it. So here's the thing. At the end of seven days, Xerxes calls his queen, Queen Vashti, um, who is very beautiful and wants to parade her around all of his male guests who have been seven days of drinking. Um, Vashti, the queen, not wanting to be humiliated in front of a group of drunken men, declines his request and says, I'm not coming. And so she doesn't, she goes, she refuses to go. So the king obviously is angry about this. But oddly, he doesn't make a decision. He consults with his advisors. What do I do about this? Now, this is funny. The advisors say this is a big problem. But not because she's, you guys have got an issue. It's because our wives are going to see that, and our wives are now going to treat us the same way. You've got to fix this. <laughs> um, so if you don't fix this, we're all suffering because our wives are following, you know, this is just a bad scenario, bad scene. And... <laughs> So I said, so their idea was pass this law, banish the queen, you know, basically get rid of her and find a new queen. And so that will be the message that we're sending. Hey, you better, you better behave um, or this is going to happen. So that was their plan. So here's, here's what we know from just this description of what's happening there in, in Persia at that point in time. The author of Esther is mocking and ridiculing Xerxes and the empire. Basically, he's saying, this is the wealthiest, most powerful man in the world, and all he does is party. All he does is throw parties, and they get drunk. He can't control his wife, and he can't make decisions on his own. That when something happens, he has to get input from other people to know what to do. Ironically, it's the queen who's the only one who acts appropriately in this whole setup. Um, so even though she's the one that's banished, the contrast, and, and again, he's writing to Jewish people who are going to get the discrepancies of behaviors. So in this whole setup, for literally for the first chapter, he's poking fun and mocking and ridiculing the King Xerxes and the Persian army. Have you ever been in a situation like this where your life is being controlled by someone you don't respect? someone that has control over you, has influence over you, and you realize they, there's no reason in the world why they should be in that kind of position. You know, whether or not you think you should be in there, clearly they shouldn't be. Few situations in life are more frustrating than when you feel like you're trapped in a bad situation and can't get out of it. 
And that's really what the author of Esther is feeling and sensing. And that's the way many of the, the Jewish people living in exile were feeling that, yes, we understand we're in this situation, but the person leading is just not someone we respect. And it's just, it's just a bad situation for us. That's what's happening to the Jews in the exile. The ridiculing carries over into chapter 2. So we find out that sometimes, whether it's a few days or a few weeks later, the king, he's no longer angry, and he misses Vashti. He doesn't have a wife anymore. And it's like, now what do I do? And he remembers he banished her, and so he can't go back and get her, and so he's stumped. So he consults with his, not his advisors, his attendants. These are probably single men, late teens, early 20s. These are not mature, wise individuals. So again, he's ridiculing the process. Really, this is who he consults. So they said, here's what you need to do. He said, you need to go find a new queen, basically to satisfy your carnal self-indulgence. And... uh, So they've set up this plan, but the selection process was not by political. They weren't going to go pick a queen who's going to enhance the political power of the kingdom. You know, sometimes by joining royalty and families, you can strengthen the kingdom. Not that at all. Basically, you're going to pick her by how how pretty is she, and does she satisfy you? That was the criteria, not a real high bar. Um, Again, he's really poking fun at just, can you believe this? Here's this world power, and this is how they pick their queen, is what he's doing here. And they even make special note of the fact that this preparation process for the, the, so they gather all, you know, all the pretty women uh, who are single, um, and they're put in basically a spa for 12 months. For one year, they've got the spa treatment, which is probably not a bad deal if uh, you've got that part um, of it. But so that's so. So the, again, it, it just shows where their priority is and what they're focusing on in the kingdom. So then we get to verse five in chapter two, and we're introduced to the what we soon learn out are the heroes of the story. First, it's Mordecai. He's inter- interesting though. He's introduced as Mordecai the Jew. You know, you, typically in the Bible, it's Mordecai, son of so-and-so, so-and-so, and so But he's introduced as Mordecai the Jew. This is the first way we hear about him. But then we also realize, we learn that he has a cousin, who is, I, I, I suspect is much younger than him, who, whose name is Esther. Esther's parents were, died somewhere early on in her life, and Mordecai has raised Esther since she was a young child. Um, and so, but they're cousins. And uh, Esther, because of her beauty, is taken to the palace as part of the harem for King Xerxes. Um, and so she gets to go through the 12-month spa treatment. And um, we learn that she ends up pleasing the king so much so that he makes her the next queen. Um, and so that's... But what's really odd is that at the very end of chapter 2, there's just three sentences Three sentences, and then they say that Mordecai hears of this assassination attempt on the king, tells Esther, Esther informs the king, they find out that it was true, and the two guys who were plotting this overthrow are hung. Actually, it's interesting, it says that they were impaled. It's actually on a pole. They're, what it is, actually, they're hung. And that'll, I'll, I'll explain more why. That actually comes in more relevant later, that. But, um, but then that's it. Three little verses at the end of that, and then it jumps back into chapter, then it goes into chapter 3, and then we're, we're actually introduced to the villain of the story is Haman. 
And uh, five years have passed since Esther's been made queen. Five years. So something's been going on. Haman is now um, introduced to us. And Haman is a high official um, within the government of Xerxes. Um, has a lot of power. And we're told pretty quick that Xerxes so likes him that he promotes him to number two in the kingdom. Number two in the kingdom. And he tells everyone that whenever Haman comes by you, you are to kneel down in front of him and honor him and respect him. And everyone does. Except Mordecai. Except Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't. And it says Mordecai, and it doesn't, here's the thing, it doesn't tell us why. We don't know why Mordecai. We just know that everyone is kneeling down but Mordecai. Most, uh, because of the way they were introduced, most people think it has to do more with racial hatred between Mordecai and Haman. Um, because it was, it was uh, Mordecai the Jew and Haman the Hagite, Hagatite, um, which from the Malachites, which in Jewish history, Israeli history, were the arch enemies of the Israelites for decades and generations. So they think there's that kind of that type of, of thing going on. But Haman finds out that Mordecai won't kneel in front of him and becomes enraged. Then in verse 6, he says, having learned who Mordecai's people were, so he's learning that he was actually in fact Jewish, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, and instead Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So not only is he going to get at Mordecai, in 120 provinces from Egypt to India, wherever Jewish people are, they want, he wants them dead which again supports this idea that this was a racial, tribal hatred or conflict between those two individuals. Think about that for a moment. Here's a person who is so full of anger, so full of hatred, so full of self-ego and pride, and so full of themselves that not only do I want to get at you, I want to literally kill you, not just you, anyone who's associated with you. I can't imagine that type of perspective, a worldview that we're... Seriously, when someone is that way, here's the thing, when you're that angry at somebody, they literally consume everything you think about. They, they literally control you. And we see how this actually plays out around how, how Haman's hatred and anger, because of his own ego, literally he sets his own trap and causes his own downfall because he's so focused on getting back at Mordecai. But at this point in time of the story, Haman sets his trap for Xerxes. I'm sorry, he sets his trap with the king Xerxes. And he goes to the king and he, he starts setting up the story. He says, he says, King Xerxes, there's this people among... The, all the realms who, who are in your kingdom, basically he kind of sets up like they're a virus. They're spreading, you know, and they're contaminating and they're polluting. And he says they keep to themselves. They don't follow our customs. They don't obey your laws. They're a real problem. <clears throat> and so he says, issue a decree to destroy them and I will pay you a ton of money. Literally what he's, and literally, it was 10,000 talents, which is about 400 tons of silver. So that's a lot of silver. Now, put it that in context, there's another, one of the historians, Artaxerxes, the son, 
there was some record of all the tribute that was paid to him from all the neighboring countries that paid tribute to him. The annual total of all the tributes was 13,000 talents. So in that context, Haman is, going to pay, is offered to pay him 10,000 talents just, for the, the, just to kill the Jews. This was a lot of money. Well, the king ends up saying, keep the money, but do what you want with the people. And so, again here, the king is portrayed as someone who's easily duped because of his own pride and ego. So their plan is this. On the 13th day of the first month, dispatches, so messengers were sent to all, by courier to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day the 13th day of the 12th month, and to plunder their goods. So basically on January 13th, this edict went out. On December 13th, at the end of the year, everyone can, is supposed to kill a Jew, and you can take all their stuff. And so that was, I, don't, I wonder why, why they put it 11 months out. Um, but obviously the message has to get, get uh, dispersed widely, but that was the plan. And that was a decree signed by the king and made law. Mordecai hears of this, and he goes to Esther and says, you've got to do something. You're the queen. You know, you've got, uh, and at this point in time, only Mordecai is known to be a Jew. No one knows that Esther's Jewish yet. So that's still a thing. And, and so, but he goes there and says, you've got to do something. Appeal to the king. Beg for mercy. See if you can get him to change his mind. Esther comes back through the messengers between them and says, I can't do that. Everyone knows that if you go to the king unsummoned, if he doesn't stretch out his scepter to you, it's, the law is you get killed. So you are literally putting your life in the hands and the mood of the king at that moment. If he's not in the mood and doesn't extend the scepter, you are instantly killed. And then she adds, this says, the king hasn't summoned me for 30 days. So it's not like I'm in and out of there all the time. So for me to show up is, is going to be noticed and it's going to be a big deal. And this is not something I really am inclined to do. I really can't do this. And then Mordecai says these words, and it's one I'm sure if you've read Esther, you're familiar with the story, and um, he sent back his answer in chapter 4. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though is it against the law. If I perish, I perish. Heavenly Father, I just um, am so conscious, Lord, um, just from this story, what we've just said, and just this, this word, this passage we just read, um, uh, just how much you move behind the scenes. 
Lord, things that are set up and done sometimes decades in advance, but they're in place when they need to be for us. Uh, Lord, in the the few minutes that we have remaining, I ask, Lord, for your continued guidance and uh, just for your spirit to speak to us in whatever way you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. That was like the all-time longest intro to a sermon I've ever given in my life. <laughs> but, but if you don't understand the dynamics, for me, you miss so much. And so with this story, there's so much about, oh, okay, that makes sense. And so as you begin to play out the details, so now I have adjusted the back end of my sermon appropriately, so don't, uh, I now have the longest ending to my sermon too. That would not be good. <laughs> So the writer of Esther is telling us that the world in which the exiles lived was ruled by a spoiled, self-indulgent king who, though he was not inherently evil, he was impulsive and easily swayed by others. Though Persia was governed by laws, those laws could be easily manipulated by fools whose egos could make the very dangerous, would make life very dangerous for the exiled Jews. So, let me wrap up our time here with a few thoughts about uh, things to consider as we live out our faith in a dark and broken world. First, don't underestimate God. He is omnipotent and present, working even when he seems conspicuously absent. If you're in a situation that seems overwhelming and God seems both silent and absent, I want to assure you he's not. Remember after I'd finished seminary, we were, we'd moved to Minnesota and it was, we were literally, we were five miles off the paved road. I mean, so we were out in the middle of nowhere. 30 days after we arrived, we had a 36 inch snowstorm. Um, and just, we were, it took them three days to actually plow our road in front of us. We were that buried back there. Um, I have no doubt God, he didn't know where I was. You know, we're trying to find where we're going in ministry. We're out in the middle of nowhere. How is God going to know? Does he even know how we just, it was just, it was not a pleasant season of life at that point in time. A couple thoughts came to my mind when God seemed silent and I didn't know what was happening. One was the story of David. David, David was out in the middle of nowhere watching sheep, and his father actually conspired against him not to bring him in. That was an intentional decision by his father not to bring him in, but God still knew where he was and made arrangements to get him. So that, that helped me. The other one was this thought. God hasn't brought me this far in my life. He hasn't done all the things he's done for me just to say at this point, okay, I'm done. You're on your own. Good luck. That's not how God operates. He's invested too much into me to give up now. Again, little nuggets of thought, little things that said, okay, it doesn't solve my situation, but I've got enough to keep going. And so I would encourage you with that. Even though you may not know the the, the solution, the resolution where it's going, God knows where you're at. You're okay. Second thought is this. Don't overestimate pagan power. Get a reference there to Haman. God can work through his greatest enemies to serve his greatest purposes. When we get to the end of the story, we realize what God was doing. It really is amazing how God literally used Haman to accomplish his tasks. God can use the obstacles in your life to accomplish his purposes. If you have a Haman in your life, hold on. That type of ego and hatred is not sustainable. It ends up being the downfall of them. 
third thought, don't overestimate Satan's strategy. Although Satan is seeking to bring destruction, God is working for our good. And then lastly, don't underestimate your kingdom's significance. God uses the most unlikely people for his greatest work. Esther was a most unlikely hero. She was an orphan, a minority, part of a minority group, living as an exile in a foreign land, a woman in a country that didn't value women. And yet she was perfectly positioned when needed. And we're going to dig a little deeper into her story in, in the, the next couple of weeks and, and all their stories in the next few weeks. But don't underestimate God. Don't underestimate the power of those that are opposing you. Don't overestimate Satan's strategy. And don't underestimate your kingdom significant. God can accomplish his, God will accomplish his purposes in you and through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for, uh, Lord, for the opportunity to, um, or for me, just to retell the story, part of the story of Esther. Lord, as we look again as to what you're doing, and sometimes, Father, as we're in our own life situations, it's hard to see what's happening. It's hard to make sense of what's going on around us. Father, my prayers for anyone who is here this morning, if they are struggling in those kind of situations, that, that they would sense, even now at this very moment, just sense that touch of the Holy Spirit. It may not be the solution to everything that they're wanting or hoping for, but it's enough to give them hope and strength to keep moving. Father, I pray for that even now. And Father, for others who may be feeling like they just don't, they're, they're unsure where they're, what their role is in life and what they're to do, and maybe they're feeling insignificant. But Lord, Lord, may this week, may they have conversations, may they be connected to opportunities that would change that for them. May they develop the relationships that provide value and significance to let them know, Lord, that you have crafted them uniquely and specifically for your purposes. So, Lord, we continue to just put our lives in your hands and trust you in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.